Hey there, my name's Doug Bird and welcome to Something Fresh, where we talk to adventurers, athletes and progressive thinkers. On this show, we aim to create an environment where you, the listener, can escape, explore and learn through interesting people who have achieved great things. The idea is to help people grow, become inspired and through that, encourage them to take that first step towards doing something about it. If that's not up your rally and you're simply here to listen to interesting conversations, then that's cool too. Thanks for tuning in. Now's the time to sit back, relax, and enjoy the journey. An honor today to be talking to a proudly South African triathlete, arguably one of the most successful uh, to be racing at an international level. We are welcoming to something fresh, Richard Murray, born in 1989. It's so good to be chatting to a man that was born in the 80s. It doesn't make me as, feel as old as I am. And he's done some impressive things in the sport of triathlon. To give you a bit of taste of what he's managed to achieve, he's, of course, in the ITU and World Triathlon Series space, uh, had 95 starts. Out of those 95 starts, he's had 46 podiums and 25 wins. So if you add all of those numbers together in terms of podiums and wins, his strike rate is incredibly high. And I just feel sorry for his competition because they almost uh, don't really stand a chance. But Richard's career kicked off in the junior duathlon world. And that was in around 2008 and 2007 and 8. And uh, that is, of course, where he became the junior duathlon world champion. And in 2010, uh, he, of course, was the African champion and really established himself as a force to be reckoned with on a global level. In 2012, Richard went on to his first World Tour Series win in Hamburg and went on to podium twice more that same season. A massive year for him in 2018, where he managed to rack up a win at his hometown ITU Triathlon World Tour event um, in Cape Town, South Africa. He also got first place at Leeds, third place in Hamburg, fourth in Montreal, and third at the World Triathlon Grand Final Tour on the Gold Coast. And that's just to get started. So, Richard Murray, you've done a huge amount. You've still got lots of gas in the tank, though. Welcome to the show. Yeah, no, thank you. Gee, that's quite a quite an quite an announcement of uh, of of myself, uh, someone coming from Durbanville, South Africa on a little farm, but uh, yeah, I'll uh, take whatever comes, I guess, at this at this moment in time. And uh, yeah, it's great to, to chat again to uh, a fellow South African and uh, yeah, I've known you for, I'd say a couple of years now already. So yeah, looking forward to the chat. Well, Rich, when you, when you look back on your career, I mean, or, or do you look back on your career after, you know, hearing me give you an introduction like that and you know, we're not even including your 2015, 16, 17 uh, achievements in there because you've represented South Africa at multiple Olympic Games and you've achieved great things in those in those preceding years as well. When you hear those types of announcements, does it ever kind of get you to the point where you, you look back on your career and start reflecting a little bit because it's really been impressive? Um, yeah, well, I would say yes and no. Um, I think when I'm going through the bad times, and I always try and reminisce the good times. I think that's one important thing to do. Uh, but yeah, I don't try. I, I never try to uh, float my own boat, or, or you know, try and talk myself up, or try and try and be you know, act egotistical in any way. Um, so I kind of you know, I just do my daily, and I'm just a guy that runs around in uh, in Lycra around the world, uh, uh, racing for his country. So you know, I keep it uh, keep try and keep it simple as I can. Well, you've uh, you've obviously taken this very seriously from from a young age. I mean, that goes without saying. Looking back to your early wins in two thousand and seven and two thousand and eight at the Junior uh, Duathlon World Championships, but it didn't start there. I mean, you would have had to put in some some really consistent training years and 
and months and weeks and blocks to be able to get up to that level. So before we dive into the real meat of the conversation, why don't you take us a little bit back to, to the beginning of your career and, and where the bug bit, so to speak, and how you got into the sport of triathlon? Um, yeah, so I think, yeah, I would say I would say the bug sort of started to bite already when I was in primary school. Um, I started to do cross country running at, at primary school and, and I really I was really starting to uh, do pretty well in, in primary school and I was out running guys on the on the field and I got the the rec- record for the I think it was a 1200 meters or something like that in, in Kenridge primary uh, on the grass track and so I kind of like started to get com- competitive at an early age I also won the victory 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 uh, as well for like the high jump and long jump and javelin and running and hurdles and all that so I kind of did a bit of all the sports and I kind of enjoyed all of it and I think yeah I got uh, quite competitive at an early age and uh uh, that kind of progressed into the mountain biking scene where I raced the mountain biking um, quite seriously and then road cycling for a road cycling team. And uh, it kind of like snowballed uh, towards multi-sports um, and uh, Xterra as well. I kind of did the Xterra and I really loved that. Um, so yeah, I definitely came from like, from a, from a, I wouldn't say a serious sporting background, but I think I already knew uh, that I wanted to be, you know, hopefully become a top sportsman when I was older, when I was about probably 10 or 12, somewhere around there. And in terms of those early days, is that something that you just found yourself organically gravitating towards, or you know, is there a bit more to to the story than meets the eye? There is your your family, no doubt, comes from uh, an athletic pedigree of sorts, or, or or at least other family members really enjoying the outdoors and sports like triathlon, mountain biking, even even motorsport. When we've caught up in the past, you've shared with me um, that your dad is a is a real motorsport enthusiast. Yes, definitely. No, we. I mean, I kind of was following what my parents were doing, and my dad was always wanting to do these cycle events. So every second weekend, we would uh, do a mountain bike race or a road cycling race. Uh, they're in abundance in the Western Cape. So uh, from from the Cape August cycle tour, I did my first cycle tour when I was eleven uh, on a mountain bike uh, with my dad. I think I did like six and a half hours. Um, and then every year we tried to beat that time. So by the time I was I think 16, I did my first sub three hour August. I think I was 16 or 17, I did the first sub three hour August. Um, and so I was pretty competitive there really in the cycling, just going through high school. Um, but yeah, it definitely comes from my from my father's side. My father's a, a bit of a motor, motorbike lunatic, if you could put it. And uh, yeah, no, he definitely enjoyed that. And we also did some motocross on the farm. We, we built like a motocross track uh, or enduro type track around the farm and we'd race each other kind of every afternoon on the motocross bikes as well. So there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of competitive spirit between brothers as well growing up. So in terms of uh, the motorsport world, we also know that you, you've got a bit of a, a four-wheel motorsport habit. If, if anyone pops on over to your Instagram handle, they'll see that you've had, uh, I'd say, a fairly wide range of interesting vehicles over the, over the last five to ten years. Is that a, Obviously, it's a clear passion and, and a hobby, four-wheel motorsport and driving fast in cars. Where did, where did you pick that up? Um, well, I, I think that's well a little bit from my father's side as well. He collects he collected motor vehicles as well, and so I kind of had a whole bunch of friends that were really into the modifying game and modifying cars and everything and stuff. So all the way through high school, I was uh, one of the guys that hang out with the motorheads in school. Um, so we'd talk about engines and all this and stuff the whole time, and it, it was it was entertaining. I kind of I kind of enjoyed. It. I mean, now I don't even own a vehicle, so I've gone like from the one extreme to the next extreme. 
Um, and I mean, here in the Netherlands, a lot of people commute by bike and they're very eco-friendly. So kind of the motorsports world is, I mean, it is a big thing here, but uh, to get around now, I mean, it's very eco-friendly and you can kind of, everything's coming, becoming electric. And so the whole world is changing a lot, but you know, I still, I still enjoy the, the, the motorsports world. Definitely still, still have some interest there. So no vehicle from, from, geez, what was the last one that I saw you post about? Was it an Audi or was it a BMW? I can't remember. You... No, they had an Aura, an Audi Allroad, the, yeah, the one where you can adjust this is like hydraulic suspension or the air ride suspension. <laughs> so I, cause I always, I always wanted that and we got it from someone in Hart Bay. And then before that I had a 330 diesel M Sport, uh, BMW. And I think that was probably the best car that I've owned um had like so much power it was rear wheel drive um the lines i mean the dolphin shape of the bmw is like the three series is like a it'll probably remain a classic forever um and so i actually wanted to get an m3 but the fuel consumption is like 20 liters per 100 um <laughs> my, my one friend got caught doing like close to 300k an hour on the n1 uh on his in his, in his m3 and he almost got taken to jail so I kind of decided that maybe it's not that's not the route I want to go. So <laughs> I went for a diesel instead. Fair enough. So so were you one of the lads on the weekends when you weren't racing and you had a bit of spare time that headed over to Kalani and 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 pushed some laps in your car? No, I never I never really went to Kalani with a with a I did, however, after the one Kalani we were actually cycling around the track and they were cleaning the track up and I took someone's Audi around the track kind of illegally uh, for one time, which was quite fun um but we haven't no i haven't uh i think the last time i climbed in a fast car uh, i was in uh, canada and this guy had like uh he had seven lamborghinis and he had like aston martins and he had like you name it type of thing at, at his house it was a uh, in canada and he messaged me on instagram and he said oh do you want to come around and ride the lamborghinis so i said what and i had a look and he had like a ventador and a Pippamonte and a uh, all these cars lying around in, in this garage and so we, we went out and we like ripped these Lamborghinis around the countryside in Canada which was quite a cool I mean I always wanted to go in a Lamborghini so I ticked one of those boxes which was pretty cool that's pretty cool man is it is it unlike anything you've ever experienced in terms of power and handling and all those good things no it's definitely I mean it's like on the on the kind of in the region of motorcycle I mean, motorcycles can accelerate, you know, at crazy speeds. I remember my father would always be pinning it on the motorcycle, motorcycle and I'd be behind him looking over the thing to see how fast we were going. And I'm like, faster, faster. And we would like almost next 300k an hour on the motorcycle in some places. <laughs> um, and I think I was probably like 10 or 12 sitting on the back trying to look over. But the wind was so strong that I couldn't see the speedometer when I tried to look around my dad to see the speed, which was a bit dangerous. But think that was, <laughs> my father really enjoyed speed so i think that kind of translated a little bit so i mean talking about keeping it pinned i've also if anyone spends time again on your instagram profile they'll see that you you really enjoy mountain biking i mean you touched on it a little bit earlier on but one thing i don't think a lot of people realize is that um you're really good on a mountain bike i mean you 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 can ride enduro you can ride downhill i mean you do things on a cross-country bike and hitting tabletops and gaps and those types of things that most uh, most people would never consider doing tell us a little bit about the journey in that mountain biking space because uh, it certainly looks like it's been an interesting one yeah no definitely i mean the mountain biking uh, at one stage I, I wanted to become a professional uh, uci mountain biker um 
and uh, yeah, it came from, I mean, where they had the, uh, what did they used to call it? It was in Grayton. Um, uh, it was like a whole weekend of uh, mountain biking. Um, and they had like everything from four cross to downhill to hill climb to cross country races to everything. And everyone was super hipster, would be outside in their tents and stuff over the whole weekend, partying and stuff. And it was quite an interesting, uh, <laughs> interesting place to chill. My parents were pretty keen to go there and stuff. And so we went there and you could try and I think Marant Boerta was busy organizing that. Um, and uh, yeah, so we went there and I did the downhill. So, so I did literally started to do downhill on a cross country bike on a hardtail. Uh, and I've got some pictures of me and Eden going down these massive rock gardens on like a hardtail mountain bike. Um, back in the day with like a full face motocross helmet on, which is, uh, which is quite a cool picture to have. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we did that and I was good at four cross as well. So I really enjoyed four cross. Um, there was one in magic forest. I actually, I don't think I ever forget. I managed to win a downhill race on my hardtail mountain bike. <laughs> um at uh magic forest they had a downhill it was from the top it went all the way down pretty much to the gate at the bottom and because there were some flat sections you could actually pedal hard in between and actually ended up winning them up the the downhill thing uh on a hardtail which was pretty cool um and so yeah i think that was yeah i really enjoyed going fast downhill and being very technical and stuff like that and uh so yeah i think that that hopefully you know uh translates or helps across coming across into the triathlon world a little bit being on the road so let's uh, move on to on to triathlon um, and duathlon in particular. Um, you know, it's it was kind of where you made your name for yourself, so to speak, in those in those junior years. Um, obviously, running is is a strong point of yours, uh, and moving away from mountain biking and onto road cycling, it seemed like a what would have been a, a fairly natural transition. What aspects uh, of duathlon and triathlon excite you? The most from a sportive perspective of course we all know you'd like to compete but what are the other aspects that keep on drawing you back to really pushing yourself to the maximum in those spaces yeah well i think you know it's there's so much to triathlon i think because it's to try and you know like get extremely good or try and perfect three sports as, as best as you can as i wouldn't say near impossible so it's like a a feat that you'll kind of be doing very well, well at the one, but the other one won't be in the best position. The other one will possibly be in maybe a bit of a worse position. So you're like continually juggling this act of three different sports. Um, and also to do with training, you know, uh, how you structure your week, how you structure your months, how you structure your year. Um, it, it, you know, it's a big juggle really. Um, and to obviously not get injured. And so it's, you know, I think the triathlon is like an all round body, you know, like swimming your upper body needs to be strong um the cycling you have to have really strong glutes and you have to have really you have to be very powerful and aerodynamic on the bike and then on the running you have to be light as well um so you have to be light and very efficient so there's a lot of different aspects that come together to be a top triathlete um and so i kind of enjoy that and obviously we can cross over from different sports so we can go mountain i mean now we wouldn't usually go mountain biking in the middle of an itu season but you know the coach kind of told us now you know go ahead and do what you guys feel like you want to do you know if it's if it's some cardio work doesn't matter what it is you know go out and do it um so yeah that's kind of why you know i like the sport of triathlon it's very very diverse and and your journey as an athlete and and this is always what really interests me in chatting to people like yourself is that traditionally from a south african perspective athletes really struggle with a transition from being very dominant locally but then making that transition to being competitive 
um, and effective on a global stage. I don't think it's an isolated South African problem. I think all countries around the world, or anyone really from around the world, will always go through a period of of trial and error in in trying to bridge that gap, so to speak. Of course, you do get those freaks of nature, which kind of they leave their their home countries, and and the the level at the in their home country is at that world class level already. So the transition is probably a little bit easier for them. But I'd say that's probably um, a few and far between. That's what I'd like to really unpack with you you next, because that's something you've done really well. Uh, how did you manage that process of of racing being dominant in South Africa, but then heading overseas? and and starting to build your career there because for me in looking back in your career you've always had a very clear intention of working towards becoming the best in the world um yeah so i mean that's not i wouldn't say the easiest thing to answer but um definitely i think when i when i was already about 16 17 years old um i started to realize how big the pond was um and the first time going overseas we went across to australia which was pretty much one of the furthest trips you can do from South Africa, apart to go to New Zealand or Hawaii. Um, and uh, we went all the way over there and stuff. And, and I went to go and I raced against it. I think I was my first year under 19. So I was 16 years old. Uh, I went to Jaslan World Champs. Uh, it was in 2005 uh, in Australia. So quite some years ago. And uh, yeah, I kind of realized like, wow, how big the picture is here. You know, it's just like, I thought, I, you know, I was the, I was the big dog. I never really thought I was the big dog, if that makes any sense, uh, in South Africa. Uh, I still don't. I don't think I'm better than than anyone else in you know in in anything really. I just kind of do what I do day in day out and, and enjoy it. Um, and so I kind of realized how big the how big the pond was, and kind of thought, well, maybe I can maybe I could take a shot to trying to be similar like these guys. And you know, what do I need to do to to get to where they are or, or that type of thing. And I think from South Africa, you know, it's a, the cost of travel uh, along with time being abroad on your own is uh, very daunting. You know, I think if, if you're a very homebound person, um, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm not a homebound person, but I've had to learn to get used to the, the discomfort of being overseas and being, being by myself. And I mean, luckily now I've got a good a group of people. So I think the best thing we to do is have a great environment and a great group that makes you feel like you're at home while you're overseas. Um, and so now, luckily, I've you know I've been spending a lot of time in Europe over the last ten years, um, and so I've got to know in France, uh, got to know countries like France, uh, Spain, the Netherlands, uh, also the UK, um, and a lot of areas around that. I've gotten sort of become a little bit like my second home. Um, so it's definitely helped me get used to it. Um, not saying that you know after six or seven months, I've got a limit of about seven months before I can before I have to come back to South Africa. I start to lose my my cool a little bit. I don't have buddies around. I can't go and have a beer and 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 make some braibrokies and all that stuff, you know. And uh, but uh, definitely, you know, you got to you got to have balance and you got to stay in contact with family and friends all the time to just keep yourself sane, really. So going back to those early days of trails, uh, tra- tra- sorry, training and 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 going to faraway places like New Zealand and you know developing your process and uh, over that period of time. I'd say at at a young age, at 16, 17, it's also, there's a lot of discovery. Physiologically, you're still very much developing as an athlete. Um, you're maturing, you're getting stronger. There, there are a lot of changes that are happening. What is it like trying to adapt in that sense as well? Was, was your training any different back then? Did you have a coaching structure that you were kind of adopting or, or coaching 
principle that you were working under. Be very interested to hear how you approach that aspect of your of your training at such a young age. Um, yeah, well, so at the literally when I the first time I went across to Germany, I think my parents bought me a book of of uh, of how to coach or how to coach or how to train to a degree, which I think that's uh, uh, the Training Bible by Joe Friel. Um, and so I literally was every day reading this like this is my Bible, you know, this is what I'm going to do, and I've got to I've got to learn how to do what I'm doing to the best of my capability. Um, and so I literally looked at the different way dynamics of of of, co- of training and of periodization and of planning and of gee, like a lot of different aspects of of professional sports and how to travel and how these things and uh, a lot of it uh, during the years was just picked up uh, trial and error more or less. Uh, okay, that didn't work out. Okay, don't do that again. Okay, and uh, this worked well. Okay, maybe try that again. You know, and uh, kind of putting all these things together and like even having a uh, having a list of all the items I needed to take to the race with me, I have like on the back of my diary. So it was back in the days where you actually had like a diary with like all your paperwork and everything. And I've got all my training, all the training I've done over, well, I think since 2008 or 2009 or 2013, I've got like it on hard copy, like on a, in diaries, which is quite cool. Um, and I had like all the, the do's and don'ts that I should do and shouldn't do. And then obviously when I go to a race, all the items I had to bring. So I had like then I did this checklist before I go to the race and I'd literally put my checklist out and I'd pack everything in the bag from my checklist, uh, make sure I didn't forget anything. And I think it was a like systematical way of doing things uh, and learning from obviously from other athletes. I think you can learn a lot. I mean, nowadays this was this was the days before Instagram. I think Facebook Facebook had come out about a year or so. Or it was just coming out back then. So the, the information you could get was much less than it is today. So I think people can learn a lot quicker now than they did 15, 20 years ago. Um, and so I think even when I, when I listen to some of Conrad Stoltz's stories over the years with some of the things he went to go and do, he also went through some pretty interesting times, to say the least. Um and yeah, so I kind of learned it and trying to implement it as the times went on, really. I've uh, I've been uh, in one or two talks with Conrad Stoltz where he shared his journey as uh, as the caveman or how he got to developing or got given the name the caveman. And as you say, fascinating stories. The guy is as hard as nails. Uh, some of the some of the things that he's pushed through to get results, and including big injuries. I mean, he he gashed his foot open at one point. At, where it was so bad, he very clearly needed not one or two stitches, but more like 20 to 35 stitches. But he just duct taped his foot up, went on to race, and still one came across the line with just blood oozing out of his shoe. So he is definitely a caveman and an animal. Was he someone that you really looked up to as, as a young athlete and aspired to? And if not, Conrad, did you have any role models that you really looked up to and wanted to emulate? Um, yeah, well, I think from from the role model perspective, uh, I look towards some of the guys that did uh, duathlon. So guys like Tim Don and uh, Peter Robertson, uh, as well as Javi Gomez as well. Um, they, you know, there were some really consistent guys that uh, came across from the duathlon world, which was pretty much what uh, I was going through. You know, how to how to triathlon uh, could be the book, um, but. Uh, uh, definitely, I looked up to them, and and they managed to make the the, the transition from duathlete to, to to world class triathlete. And uh, I think a lot of guys that can swim and bike, uh, sorry, bike and run, um, usually battle on the swimming side. And they say, oh, if only I could swim, you know. And that's kind of exactly what I went through. 
so it was definitely the, those guys that were in that same scenario that I was in that were ones that I looked up towards. So swimming to you, as we've chatted about in the past, hasn't necessarily come to you naturally. It's something that you've really had to focus on. And you've obviously improved a huge amount over time. But what uh, what did you have to do to get up to speed? Because you would have, you, you mean, you would have had to make some pretty big gains in a short space of time. Um, and the one thing we do know is that you are often under pressure and coming out of the water. But through your, through your bike and your run, you always manage to move back into the mix. Swimming is not easy, man. Uh, how have you managed to get to that level of being competitive and being able to stick with the best in the world? Yeah, so the swimming, I love-hate relationships, to tell the honest truth. Um, <laughs> you know, the better I get at swimming, the more I enjoy it. And uh, the more unfit I am, the more I hate it. And I think it's qu quite similar to kind of anything in life. Um, you know, if you don't do it for a while, you kind of get bad at it. Um, and so, I mean, even now, it's the same thing. We had a whole bunch of weeks out the water. We got back in and I thought, geez, like, have I not, swimming, have I not really swum in my life? You know, it's kind of... It's very interesting, but you go backwards very quickly in the water, uh, whereas running and, and, and biking, um, obviously you're on the ground. So you kind of after a couple of weeks, you know, you start getting the strength back and then you're kind of in a reasonable level. Um, and so definitely I've had to, to learn from a lot of different coaches and a lot of different ways of swimming. There's like so many different styles of swimming or ways to swim. And obviously it's developed over the years. And uh, so I went through different coaches and they gave me advice on this and advice on that and I think the one biggest thing I learned was to try and find the someone who who is renowned for good technique swimming who's good at changing someone's technique and I think to try and change your technique to a, a you know a very smooth and efficient swimming style um, is really really important I think you can go I mean most people you know if you, you can go and you can bash out lanes until it comes out your brain and you can still be an average to bad swimmer um, whereas cycling and running, you know, you can get to a pretty decent level if you put in a lot of mileage. Um, you can still go and do something uh, reasonably, you know, competitive against other people. But in swimming, you need to really know what you're doing to kind of get into, a, you know, to a, up to a good speed. And swimming, as you say, is so technical. It's something that you need to put a lot of time into perfecting. How many years have you been working at trying to get better and better at it? Because arguably it is is the one aspect of your game where you might be able to find more improvement. I mean, in terms of your running, I, I don't know if you can get much faster. It's insane running sub 30 minute 10 Ks consistently. It absolutely blows one's mind. Um, and also on the bike, you know, we've seen you reconnect back into the racing bunch on your own on several occasions. How much more is there for, for Rich left in the tank uh, in terms of finding those marginal gains in, in your swimming? Yeah, and no, I think, you know, the we're, well, I mean, we've moved again now to, so now we've actually got kind of two swim coaches, uh, one locally here that we do when we're in the Netherlands, um, we're, when we train here at Rachel's, at Rachel's place. Um, and so that's one close by. He's a top-level swimming coach. And uh, then we have the National Federation coach as well when we're abroad who, who writes us programs and, and keeps us in check as well. Um and so I definitely think there's always improvement. You know, it's funny because my swimming got into a really good space a couple of uh, uh, months ago, like three, four months ago, kind of near the start of the season, Jan, Feb, my swimming was really, you know, really competitive, ready to race type thing. I think it's kind of some of the best swimming uh, ability I've had. Uh, and then obviously all the races didn't happen. I was like, oh, it took me like three months to get the swimming fitness up to some good, good form. 
and to try and hold that form is really, really difficult. Um, I think from you know from from a top swimmer's side, I think they know how to swim and the, and the technique is really good. So they just have to build their fitness and they're fast. Uh, so it's the same for me on the run, really. So I've kind of got to you know prepare myself for certain races uh, and take a couple of months or two and really focus and dial in my technique on the swim and stuff, and then I can be uh, more competitive for a couple of months. But that's the funny thing is your brain will always go back to the uh, whatever's whatever's normal for your most comfortable. And unfortunately, the most comfortable is not always the most efficient. <laughs> Fair enough. So talk us uh, talk us through what it's like to race at a at an international level. I, I guess uh, before we move into kind of more of the the business end of the sport. What is it like, Rich, lining up there against the likes of the Brownleys and uh, Javier Gomez, as you've said, uh, amongst many others? You and Mola have had some incredible battles as well. What is what is your process there and, and what's going through your mind? Because, I mean, for the most part now, it's probably just, oh, okay, another day at the office. Um, but surely there must be some occasions where, where you're really feeling it because at this stage of your career, you know everyone that you're racing against. You know their strengths, you know their, you know their weaknesses. You've either beaten them or you've pushed them to the absolute limit, including yourself. As, as a normal human, I'd always love to know what that feeling must be like to line up at a World Champs event or a World Tour event or even an Olympic Games and, and how you deal with that moment. Yeah, so I think it's, you know, I would say that feeling has changed over time a little bit. I mean, the first couple of times I remember when I did my first World Series races and I got substituted and I was literally like a headless chicken standing there on the start line with these big dudes and I didn't know any of them and I just knew that all of them were mean and nasty and probably going to give me an absolute hiding in the swim, um, which kind of still happens sometimes, but um definitely you know I was quite it was quite a daunting thing I stood there and my first world series race I'll never forget it was in Hamburg I was with uh, uh, Hendrik de Villiers and uh, Erard Wolfart and these guys were racing so they were they were kind of when they were the top that I was looking up to when I started racing uh, world series um, and yeah I'll never forget I'll never forget it it was an Olympic distance race that we did there and I was I was scared and I was kind of thought like this is you know I don't, I don't really belong here yet type of thing you know it was uh, and I actually ended up having to pull out halfway through the bike, I was I was pretty sick beforehand and I couldn't find the medical delegate. So usually there's a medical person you can go to and tell them, listen, yeah, I need this, I can't compete. Um, I need to be taken off the list. And I couldn't find that person. Eventually just decided like, YOLO, let's just go and try and see what I got. <laughs> and I was, uh, had had like, I wouldn't say bronchitis, but it was heading that direction. Um, and uh, so I started and I had to pull out in the race. And, and you know, as the years kind of ticked on, so that was 2000. I think 2009 or something like that, or 10, somewhere around there. Um, and uh, you know, I might even be 11, actually. But um, it was, yeah, so it was definitely daunting. And I think the more, you know, when I started racing, I started to realize I can actually take these guys on, you know. Um, I think mentally you start changing your mindset on, you know, I'm, I shouldn't be here to, you know, you know, this is where this is where I belong, you know, and this is what, this is my life and this is what I do. Uh, and so, I think every time I stand on the start line, I always think, you know, I'm fortunate to be able to be here to do this uh, in the first place. Uh, you know, a lot of people are not as fortunate. So that's the first thing. And then I always, I have the same thing in my head that I tell myself always before the start, like I'm standing up on the line and the, the music's going quiet. And I always just tell myself, I'm like, this is my time. This is my moment. And I must do everything that I can with this, with the situation. And I always just do that literally like clockwork, 20 seconds, 30 seconds before the start. 
And I kind of do the same thing every time. And that kind of gets me like a little bit fired up just before the start. You know, sometimes you're not that motivated or sometimes you're very motivated because you've maybe come off an injury or you haven't raced in a long time. And then you're really keen to prove yourself to other people. You know, you're keen to prove what you can do. Um, but I always just try and, you know, take out what I can from every race, uh, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether the weather was horrible, you know, whatever it happened to be. Um, and so it's definitely over the years changed. And I think when I go there now, it's cool to know, like, about, yeah, as you said, like 80% of the field. I look to the left, look to my right, um, and I kind of know a lot of people staying around me, which is quite cool. We can joke and have fun. So it's like one kind of big, uh, interesting circus family that runs around the world uh, and, uh, yeah, and does it and, and races as hard as we can. Has there ever been a time where you've arrived on the start line and you are just feeling invincible? When you, you, you get there, you know you're in good shape. You know you're feeling, you're just, your warm-up things have gone well and you think poor, poor Oaks that are lining up next to me and you've gone on to to put together an absolutely dominating performance. Has is, is that ever happened? And and if so, how many times has it happened, if you can remember? I think I think it's... I think I felt like that twice before, I think. And the one time was at these, at, uh, so we do these Bundesliga events, um, which are, which are kind of like, I would say like world cups or like continental cups. So they're a little bit lower, a tiny bit lower level, um, athlete. So, um, another up and coming ones from Germany, um, and a couple of international guys that come and race as well. So there'll probably be like five or 10 international guys that are pretty good, um, and then the rest is kind of medium fields type athletes. So sometimes when I line up there, I wouldn't say I feel like a tiny bit of a sandbagger a little bit, but it's, you know, I really enjoy doing their racing there and it's, it's a good level and it's a great like stepping stone race um, for me just for, for some of the bigger races. Um, so the one, there's been a one or two occasions where I go there and I feel like I'm kind of a bit of a boss there, which is nice. Um, but, uh, and, and some of the time I'll, in the Bundesliga races, I'm, I've got to feature top three. Like my my premiums come at like one, two, and three places. If I'm fourth, I get uh, that today. So um, the pressure's high there, but that's cool. Uh, I really enjoy it. And uh, the other time at one World Series race, I've gone in there saying I'm going to win this at the one World Series race, uh, and that was in Gold Coast 2016. And I ended up in the fence on the bicycle at like 50k an hour and broke my collarbone. And so. I learned a good lesson from that one, and I realized that too much confidence can end up in things going a bit nasty, um, and you can be overconfident, and I went through this corner like I was on a motorcycle. I just went through like so full gas, and halfway through the corner, my wheel started to skid, and I thought, oh, I can save this, and then I ended up having to straighten my bike up instead of taking the corner, and I straightened it up into the fence. Uh, and then I was like leaning with my shoulder over the fence, trying to keep my my shifters away from the railing. And I was like shouldering the fucking railing. And then eventually my my foot got hooked in the railings, and I just ate it at like over fifty. Um, and uh, yeah, I crashed and broke my collarbone there. And so yeah, I learned a good lesson from that one too. Yeah, confidence is key, but I suppose overconfidence is is something that needs to be to be reined in. When, when you're caught up in that moment, though, Richard. Are you? Do you find yourself to be quite a level-headed thinker, or do you just you, you sometimes find yourself going all in? You know, you you don't really think of the consequence. You're happy to take the chance and put the pressure on those around you, and and hopefully, an opportunity presents itself for you to move away and ultimately take the win. Um. Yeah. Well, I think it. You know, it depends on the scenario to a little bit. But I have had one or two races where 
I've literally hadn't thought about it. I just literally rolled the dice, you know, and sometimes that's fun. You know, it's, it's like, uh, you don't want to always be somebody who's thinking, oh, what should I have done? Should I have tried that? Or maybe I should have tried to break away or maybe I should like, you just need to go for it, you know? And uh, I think you'll have no, you'll have no regrets then if you do that. And uh, I remember the one race in Yokohama, we were, uh, we were racing and there were like five or six of us running together. And at about like three K I decided I'm going to put the, put the hammer down at like three kilometers. And then the commentary, I remember watching it afterwards and the commentary guy says, Oh, Bridget Murray knows it's a, 10k and not a 5k because he's going for it (laughs) (laughs) and my brain also thought like what am i doing here and i just like put the hammer down and so the other guys had to respond which is like not usual for somebody to start sprinting at 3k into a 10k yeah um and i think i paid for that somewhat um (laughs) when we rolled through (laughs) it about the six or seven k mark i was starting to feel the surge quite a lot and uh, we had managed to drop the two brownie brothers which which was quite an enjoyable moment. Um, and uh, then then Javier Gomez started to surge like crazy. And he does his surge where he puts the hammer. We're going like three minutes a K already. And he decides, okay, now he's going 245. So he speeds up to 245 and we've got to respond. And then he backs off. And I think he did this about five times. Eventually I had like, there was just nothing left. And he just went again. And I was like, okay, listen here, boys, I'm done. <laughs> and there I Mario and uh, Mario and uh, Javi Gomez just dropped me in the last like 2K or K and I was just spent. I was just like, make sure I don't blow up and end, end up falling on the road and being knocked out. And uh, yeah, that was a pretty cool, that was a pretty cool race. But uh, yeah, I think there was another race where I tried to break away uh, in New Plymouth on the World Cup. And I told Martin van Riel, I said, bro, I'm going to go for it. You got to come with me. He said, okay, cool. And then I actually tried to break away from the bunch uh, on the bike and then he actually ended up pulling the whole bunch back to me. And I was uh, like, dude, no, I said, come with me. Don't bring the whole bunch back to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so I think those are the kind of the two moments where I was like, I just thought, I mean, I wouldn't say there's very few moments where I'm not trying to catch just tell the real truth. I think if you can look back at my results, you just look back at the swim and I came out like maybe within the last 20 or 15 people. And then on the bike, I've kind of, ridden myself as best I can and cornered as best I can to save as much time as I can or close time and then on the run kind of just done everything I could really well talking about the running and doing everything you can you're obviously carrying some great form at the moment because uh, the other day uh, you posted up here it was kind of mid-may or just after mid-may that you set your your PR for a five kilometer 13 minutes and 37 seconds that is absolutely ridiculous how how have you worked over time to develop yourself into such a running powerhouse has has it been a combination of uh, your technical approach improving obviously it's got a lot to do with your training and nutrition but how have you managed to to become so strong and in many cases so dominant in the running space um yeah well i think it probably comes from just well, from I think I've got genetics, which is which is a big playing factor. I think that helps a hell of a lot. Um, and I think another big one, obviously, just uh, putting in the miles. I think uh, we put in about five months of training. So we started training in about end of November or start in the middle of November side. Um, and so there were no races. I also did a track race uh, about four weeks or no, about a month and a half before in South Africa. I did a 5,000-meter track race. Um, in Paro, which I did because the Abu Dhabi event got cancelled and I wanted some hit out because I'd tapered and everything and I was just 
wanting to race something. And uh, so I ran 14 and 17 there. Um, and then when I was here, the coach put in, I said, yeah, we're going to do something fun. And the coach said, okay, cool. We'll give you a 5K time trial. I said, okay, cool. So we'll do that. We'll see how it goes. And I said, listen, yeah, I've like really not done much speed work. Like this is, I've got to be realistic with myself here because we did some speed work when I got here because we still, to, to the Netherlands, because I still thought there were going to be some races happening. So I did a couple of speed work sessions. But apart from that, like 320, 315 was the fastest pace I'd seen uh, in a probably close to two months. Um, and so I literally thought, okay, well, let's see what happens here. Let's, uh, we tapered during the week. So we also took the week leading up to the race easy. Um, and, uh, I ran in some different shoes. I'm not allowed to talk about which shoes they are really. Um, but I, I've changed running shoe company as well. Um, and that gave me a, a couple of seconds of K advantage a little bit. And, uh, that helped a fair bit. And, uh, yeah, I had Marcel, Rachel's father in front of me on a bicycle. So we went out and we set the 5k route. Uh, we checked on Google first, the roads and I'm like, okay, cool. That's 4.9 K for the lap. And then it's like, we have to add a hundred on the end to make it exactly five. Cause we don't want to be cheaters here. And, uh, so then we actually, so we did the thing. We, we went out and I told Marcel, listen, I want to go out 2:45 pace. He said, cool. He's a runner as well. So he had his running watch on him on his wrist and he went out and, he banged like 21 and a half K an hour um, for for the whole like uh, 13 minutes 50 that we went. So we actually ran 5.08 Ks, which we actually ran 80 meters long. Um, and uh, when we came in and I said, no, it was 13.48. And I was like, man, that's under 14. I'm super stoked, you know. And uh, then we went and I uploaded it and I looked and I went, shit. And I look, I'm like, man, that's like nine seconds quicker it was like 1337 and so then i posted that and then i got the amount of like people having positive stuff was great but there were a couple of people that thought that i was doping and people that thought that i was like impossible for a triathlete to run so fast and like i have to show data otherwise it doesn't mean anything and blah 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 so I had all these guys hating on me um and it was actually kind of good I kind of, it's ridiculous. Uh, it was probably the most exciting thing i've had in the last two months so i'll take it um and, uh, <laughs> Beat my father's 5k PR, which was four, which was 13, I think 1343 or 1340, 1340. So I bet his PR by about four seconds. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty pleased with it. She's I'd say. I mean, that is incredibly fast. Incredible. There's always going to be haters, though. I mean, you've got to, you've got to look past that. And yeah, man, you're from Belleville, but they don't know how tough, uh, how tough folks are from Belleville. They come, I mean, they, the guys come from Durban. So, I mean, you know, you should just come to Bubble and see why. And then... <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, now I'd like to to change gear in the conversation and, and start to talk about more, more of the commercial aspects of the sport when it comes to sponsorships and managing that aspect of your career. Of course, you need to manage your performances to be able to underpin, I would say, um, solid uh, partnership agreements, but also in competing in series like the Super League. Uh, Super League Triathlon Series, there's some some big money up for grabs there, and it's a place that you've done done really well. But before we get to Super League, talk us through your journey with sponsors, because the one thing that you have done well is manage relationships in a smart way, uh, but also you, you don't get too caught up on the emotional side of it. So what I mean by that is uh, it is something that I think is is, is a South African mentality, and I think it's because of, of the culture in which we're brought up and is that you've you've always got to be grateful for, for what you're being given. But I feel a lot of the time brands take advantage of that grateful nature of athletes and, and sometimes don't pay them what they're worth or pay them 
what they're due. And in my view, from an athlete's perspective, uh, you should only be as loyal as the brands are that are, are in terms of the amount that they're paying you, give or take a little bit, because of course it's a two-way relationship. Um, but ultimately it's business and, and you there to do a job. How have you approached that aspect of your career? And more importantly, how have you balanced that aspect of your career with still being able to manage and maintain top performances? Yeah, so I think that's quite a, I mean, quite a tricky one. And I think a lot of uh, triathletes go and do business studies or entrepreneurial studies or that type of thing before they become professional athletes. But um, the business side of triathlon is one of the biggest things, you know, on the decision making, whether you want to be a pro triathlete or where, whether you want to do triathlon as a hobby um, or as, as enjoyment. Um, and so I had to make that decision, well, I wouldn't say when I was relatively young, but uh, my parents kind of gave me two years and they said, uh, so I finished uh, studies. I studied for just two years at ETA in Stellenbosch. Uh, I kind of studied, I wanted to study sports science, but I couldn't see myself studying for, for like a couple of years and stuff. And I was like, well, where do I really want to go with this? Um, and uh, so I studied, my parents said, study something so you have something. So if you don't, triathlon thing doesn't work out, then you can go and you can you can do something within sports anyway. And so I said, okay, great. That's a, that's a great uh, way of looking at it. And uh, yeah, so then I looked at all these companies and I put a CV together and I literally looked at like how sponsorship things work and spoke to some other guys that had some sponsors. Um, and obviously it being a two-way street, you know, you have to put your CV down, you know, no one's going to come to you and just throw money at you. It's unfortunately, um, especially not at this time, in the, you know, at this, at this time and place in the world, that's even a less likely situation with all that, with all that's going on. And, uh, yeah, you definitely need to, to know your worth, um, and know how much you're worth, you know, not, not being over the top, but being, being fair, you know, and, uh, you always start, you know, when you start, it's about, uh, borrowing things from companies or just getting stuff for free here and there if you can, or even a discount, you know, representing a company, uh, showing the company what you can do for them and then not underselling yourself, as you said. Um, that's the big thing. You know, if you if you oversell yourself and you're getting something at a discount, uh, where can you go from there? You know, okay, okay, you tell the company, what else can you do for that company and you can't do anything else, then you're going to have a very difficult situation trying to rein money in in the end of it let alone getting free product um so at the start you start small um you you start relationship relationships are everything you know uh in life uh, and you need to be fair to relationships you can't be jumping brands all the time that shows badly on you as an athlete as well um and really invest in those companies, you know, look at the ones that tie in well with yourself as well. I mean, this is like another part of the spectrum a little bit. Uh, brands that suit you uh, is another thing, you know, will that come across as being uh, authentic and being real? Or are you going to be forcing the products and stuff and, and people will see through it? So you've got to be really smart with how you bring yourself across as a brand um, and try and obviously get uh, as many people on your side that can help you out uh, and believe in your brand as well. Uh, and so I think that's definitely been something that's progressed over the years. And I, I mean, I didn't have a manager until about five years ago um, or four or five years ago. Um, so I've got a manager, Adam Ackworth, he's in the UK now. Um, and uh, yeah, so he started working with me as well. And uh, I think, you know, I never thought having a manager would be, you know, would be something that's necessary, really. But if you want to get it across to companies that, I mean, you don't have contacts everywhere and a manager might have those contacts. 
and they might be able to introduce you to companies and introduce you to things uh, for a certain fee and that's completely worth it i mean if you think of it as your as you as like a, as a business you need to kind of look at all the different avenues you can and try and kind of dive into those avenues in some way um so yeah it's quite i mean it's quite in-depth uh sponsorship things it's uh, a lot of work really how did you go about getting to your initial value so to speak as in you know, you're going into conversations with negotiations with, with big companies. I mean, Red Bull's specialized bikes at that point in your career in your early days. Now you've transitioned obviously over to BMC and others. So there's there's been a bit of movement in your career when it comes to sponsors. Through that process, how did you get to your actual value from your perspective to go in there to say, all right, guys, I'm worth this much and these are the reasons why? Because that's often a point where, where athletes struggle is, yes, I know that I'm worth something, but what is that? What does that translate to, in an, in terms of an actual number? How did you work that out? I guess I think the first the first interaction I had here with because uh, you know you come to luckily I had my father come to a lot of meetings so I'm I'm a pretty small hammer but my father is definitely a bigger hammer which helped a lot um, and when you go to a company and and you you want to try and okay speak about okay how we can work together and okay, how can, is there any financial assistance available? So um, depending on the company as well. So if it's a massive conglomerate company that you manage to get through to, chances of you have getting something out of it is far higher. But if you go to a company that's uh, selling shoelaces or pencils, you're going to be have a much different uh, outlook and different scenario. Um, and so I'll never forget, we had this one uh, event organizer come to speak to us and they wanted to ask us, um, if we could endorse the event and uh i was with another athlete i won't mention exactly who the athlete was uh hopefully he's listening going to listen into this podcast but uh they asked him they said how much how much would you ask for you know for us to use you as an athlete and and he said forty thousand dollars and our, me sitting there as like a 20 20 year old hearing forty thousand dollars <laughs> across the table i thought that's impressive and the guy said, well, I'm not sure we have that money. So he said, well, that's how much it's going to be to have me as a thing. Take it or leave it. And I thought, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's, he is a boss. And and afterwards, he told me, he said, he said, Richard, you looked a bit shocked there. So he said, I said, I said yeah. So he asked for $40,000. So he said, yeah, well, he said, I've looked at the races and I've taken all my races out. And at, at, at each race, this is how much promotion i've given them and you can obviously relate that promotion to value of advertising and then you can look back to how much it would cost that company to advertise and so you can come up with a value with how much advertising value you're giving that company for promotion and then that's a set value um and so i find that quite interesting okay well that's good he said well if you if you don't know what your value is you're worth nothing is what he told me. And I thought, okay, well, currently my value is worth nothing. <laughs> so that's a good starting point. <laughs> and uh, hopefully one day I can get my value up to to, a, to a, a number that you think is fair without being a dick about it or being cocky or whatever it happens to be. Um, and obviously the more, I mean, if you're a junior and you're going to go up to them and ask them for thousands of dollars, that's not going to work very well. They're going to think you're a little bit of, a bit cocky and you need to look at ways of when you're starting, go with open hands and try and make friends with everybody. Because that's initially in the end end of it, is the more connections you have, the better opportunity you can have with it. And 
Um, now having a manager as well, um, I'll go there and try and get some free stuff. And manager says, no, just hang on a second, try some stuff out. They'll go back to them, come to them with a proposal. And now a normal triathlete won't be able to, or an athlete will come up with this massive proposal that he can present to this company. And to do something like that, you need to know what you're doing. And you need to know, you know, uh, certain things that a lot of athletes don't know, which is where a manager really comes into, into, into effect and really helps a lot. So a lot of what you're talking about there is essentially building up a brand value or a brand asset that that other brands, in this case sponsors, would want to associate with. So, you know, performance in your case, for the most part, has been taken care of from a really young age, 2006, showing your first hand at what you're capable of by winning that uh, duathlon world championships. But over that period of time, how did you approach the building of your brand? Because that's also an area that I feel a lot of athletes, in particular South African athletes, fail um, in many respects, because ultimately it's the building of the brand that is going to enable you to get really meaningful sponsorships. And this is something that you mentioned to me in a previous conversation, that your view is that you are not sponsored or, or a brand. You don't see a brand as a sponsor until you're saving money from that, from that arrangement. But in order to get to that position outside of your performance, the brand building is so important. And nowadays, I would say in the last decade, it's become a lot more easy for athletes to build their own brands because of access to, to the digital space and digital platforms. What was your strategy from the beginning there in terms of building the brand of Richard Murray? Because that's inherently where the value lies. Um, yeah, well, I think, you know, it's an interesting thing. I never really thought of it as being a brand at the start I, I more or less thought of it I mean you know to do with things like Instagram and to do with things like social media um, and to do with having a website um, so I started to I started with a blog initially so I had a WordPress blog at the start of my career uh, which I should actually go and find out and see some of the essays that I wrote there because they're probably horribly written but very true uh, which could be quite interesting to look at but um there was some way of trying to tell your story. You know, everyone's got a story to tell. Um, and that's the most authentic thing you have as an athlete. Um, and, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that the more hard off your story is, the better it becomes, but you definitely want a good story. You know, you want somewhere to come from. You want to um, not blow your horn too hard, but you want to blow it enough so that it can be heard. Um, and, yeah, I think that's that's important for an athlete to realize that, um you need to put yourself out there. And uh, I mean, some of the times I wouldn't say I overstep the line, but I try not to have too many boundaries. You know, I kind of just wing it. We see how it goes. Uh, we do the best you can with the situation and uh, try and look at the positives. Um, and I think for media as well, like social media is not the best place for negativity. It's always, I mean, it sounds horrible, but there's a hell of a lot of positivity out there compared to negativity with a lot of social, social things. Um, so I think it's it's good to you know put yourself out there, have a website, uh, write a CV as well, um, update your CV often enough, and try and spread out there and, and see you know open some connections and, and start the ball rolling. Um, and I, I mean I never forget with Red Bull as well. I mean I started uh, you know I have a million questions about can I have your Red Bull helmet? Can I have your Red Bull visor like daily almost, which I can't give out. Um, but the one thing I noticed is that is uh, it, it's it's nice that it's a it's one of the brands that at the start I didn't realize that Red Bull would help me 
with my performance as well. So I didn't realize that, that was a thing, but it's interesting how different companies can tap into different resources, which you don't necessarily know can be there. So say a bicycle company would have like bike setup thing where they can do a bike setup for you and they can help your injury and actually make you cycle faster. Um, and the running one as well from a running side, they can actually make you quicker. So there's a lot of different things that can actually add to your performance. Um, and I think in the, in, in the greater scheme of thing, it, it comes down to uh, performance and being able to sell yourself. Um, so if you don't have the best performance, but you're extremely good at selling yourself, you can make it. Uh, or if you have extremely good performance and you're kind of okay at selling yourself, you can also make it. But the person that can actually sell themselves better nowadays seems like they can make it off better than the one that actually races well, which is quite an interesting, an interesting aspect of things. But the world's social and connect connectivity has definitely changed in the last uh, decade. That's for for certain. Yeah, it really is fascinating when you start to get into into that level of conversation of the the brand value of an individual versus the brand. Well, as in, you know, not necessarily a sports person versus the the brand value of a of a sports person that's that's also influential. Um, and as you say, you know, there's a lot of people out there nowadays that for the most part aren't particularly good at anything, but they're characters that other people can identify and relate to. And through that, they build these massive channels on, on social media platforms across Facebook and Instagram and, and many others where they make really good livelihoods from, from what they do. Uh, I, I really enjoy it because it just, for me, it illustrates that there's space for everyone. Uh, there's opportunity for everyone. And, uh, and ultimately, it's your responsibility as the individual to commit, to develop a process and to stick to it. Because, you know, just because uh, that individual, for example, isn't necessarily taking part or competing in a sport doesn't mean that they aren't focused and having to really apply themselves in, in that brand building space to, to get stuff done. I, I think it's a, it's an exciting era to be alive and it's an exciting era in particular for athletes to be alive and be able to make something of it because you have so much more access than, than you did 10, 20 years ago where you know you had to rely on a newspaper to, to report on the results of what you achieved to be able to measure that to report back to a sponsor. The digital world has, has definitely opened up the doors. Yeah, no, no, certainly. I think the, I mean, information is becoming faster and faster nowadays. And as you said, with a newspaper, uh, that was the big thing. If you can get onto the front of the newspaper, then you know, then you're definitely going the right direction. Um, I mean, okay, if you're still getting in front of the newspaper now, you're still going the right direction. Don't get me wrong, but uh, you know, if you get a, <laughs> if you get a million views on YouTube, you go, which one's more important? <laughs> but uh, you know, For it's. Sure. Um, no, I definitely think it's cool. I mean, even recently started now with the YouTube channel, which I just started kind of for fun. Uh, I must admit, I'm a tiny bit lazy when it comes to making it perfect. So it's going to be a bit raw. But uh, yeah, I kind of think it's cool. I mean, we've got some some spare time now as well to do some different things. And uh, a YouTube channel was something that I thought would be fun down the line. Um, definitely not uh, very tech savvy when it comes to editing those things, but uh, you're all going to start somewhere. I remember when I bought an espresso machine once and I thought I was going to become a barista um, and uh, an espresso machine is very far off being a barista. So uh, you all got to start. <laughs> That's the thing, man. People just often lack the courage to start. And, and that for me is the difference between someone that talks a good game and that actually gets it done. Because if you go into something and you end up getting analysis paralysis, or it has to be absolutely perfect before you can get the ball rolling, 
nothing would ever get done. So I'm glad that you did start that YouTube channel and no doubt it's picked up. Uh, what is it called and how can how can people find it? What's your YouTube name, your channel name? That's very, that's, I'm going to actually have to look it up to tell the honest truth. It should be Richard Murray. So <laughs> I don't know whether you're supposed to have like, you're supposed to have a, like a, 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 some special name thing that comes up at the top. I don't know. I haven't gotten into that far yet, but uh Richard Murray's perfect, mate. It's perfect. So in closing here, Rich, we, we, we're knocking on to the hour mark here. Um, any advice for South Africans, young aspiring South Africans that want to make a crack of their sport on a global level? And it doesn't only have to apply to the context of triathlon because the principles will be the same. What would you say your overriding points of advice are for, for youngsters who are, are dominating in South Africa but want to make that global step? Is there a, a simplified process that you would advise they follow? Um, yeah, well, I think, you know, one of the most important thing is to kind of open your horizons, you know, try and find, uh, try and find a group of individuals that you can train with as well. I mean, obviously now that's a, a difficult thing to look at. I think the times now are, are, are you know, very tough for everyone now and stuff. So you've got to be looking in 2021, I would say, um, and, you know, try and find a group or try and find the top, the top environment you can get yourself into, um, get as much expertise and, and advice out of top athletes as you can. Uh, a lot of athletes are actually top athletes are open to, to replying to people. So, I mean, I reply to dozens of people daily um, on questions, questions and things that, that juniors and, and athletes have, uh, which, you know, if I can add value to somebody else and, and make their life better and their journey better, then I think that's awesome. And uh, it's, yeah, I think to be able to get out there and uh, don't be scared, take risks. Uh, if you want to go and do something, do it. And if people tell you you can't, uh, prove them wrong. I think that's, uh, yeah, that's that's my that's 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 all that I have to offer it. And try and give back to the brands. You know, people that support you, uh, you got to support them back equally. Uh, don't just go with, uh, with with empty hands. Go there and, and give them a hug and try and do everything you can with the, with the situation. Rich, always a pleasure catching up with you and uh, definitely look forward to hopefully catching up with you towards the end of the year when we've, holding thumbs, seen some sort of racing happening uh, in 2020. Any racing on the horizon that you guys are, are eyeing out at the moment for, for the rest of this year, despite corona? Um, well, the I have set my sights on, a, on another PB, um, which, which uh, will come out in the next week or two. Um, also running PB. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'll be I'll be uh, showing something. Rachel's also got some. Well, she does, she doesn't know she has something, but I've set a PB for Rachel, and she doesn't want everyone to know that it's gonna it's gonna uh, be her PB. But she wants to keep quiet. But I know she can do it. So I think that's gonna be fun. But uh, just setting a, a few little small goals. So uh, yeah, we're gonna have a look at a, a, a another running PB in the next couple of weeks, and then after that, we'll 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 readjourn and we'll kind of reassess to see if anything's happened in the world and try and set another goal or yeah, we, maybe there happens to be a race, but um, yeah, I'm not I'm not putting too much hope on uh, on there being a race in the any in the in the midterm or in the short term at all, really. Fair enough. I think that's sensible, and setting these mini goals definitely helps with the motivation. So good job at sticking with your process. But again, Rich, thanks so much for tuning in and joining us today. I hope all of you listening in have have found it insightful. Rich, if people want to get in touch with you or at least follow you across your channels, how can they find you? Um, yeah, well, so they can uh, find me on Instagram. That's the most one where I spend way too much of my day. Um, 
which is at rd underscore murray uh then i've also got a website which is trymurray.com um and uh, yeah also on youtube i started a youtube channel to go there like uh subscribe and all that other stuff i'm not sure exactly the right terminology for it but that's also under richard murray uh and i got a video coming out from the track that we ran last night pretty pretty shortly so stay tuned for that nice one thanks for tuning in folks i hope you enjoyed this installment of something fresh I look forward to seeing you at the next one. Cheers.